how does Flix approach this challenge in having its own identity in a very, very competitive niche in exhibition? So that's kind of a softball for a guy like me, because what is the name of the concept? Flix <laughs> Brew House. So let's first talk beer, right? Because everybody likes talking beer. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Russ Fisher, the editorial director of the Box Office Studios, and I am joined by Daniel Aria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, and Rebecca Polly, the deputy editor of Box Office Pro. Uh, before we get to everything we're going to talk about this week, uh, I want to mention that today's episode is part of our Indie Focus series, which is brought to you by Spotlight Cinema Networks, featuring Matthew Baser, the COO of Flix Brew House. Spotlight Cinema Networks is is the only cinema advertising company dedicated to serving the needs of art house, luxury, and dine-in exhibitors for cinema advertising, pre-show entertainment, event cinema, and digital display distribution. Spotlight offers unique revenue-generating advertising programs tailored to an upscale and influential cinema audience. In collaboration with Box Office Pro, Spotlight Cinema Networks is proud to present Indie Focus, a monthly interview series profiling industry thought leaders, iconic art houses, and executives from the country's leading luxury cinema circuits. To find out more about Spotlight Cinema Networks, visit SpotlightCinemaNetworks, all one word, dot com. And now, here's Daniel to introduce the second sponsor of this week's episode. And actually, this sponsor is coming through the concession stand. Oreo Cookies has figured out a way to take a concession stand classic to the next level. That's right, it's Oreo popcorn, and it's popping up at theaters across the country. This new blockbuster treat is made with real Oreo cookie pieces, drizzles of Oreo-based cake, and drizzles of Oreo cream. What better way to welcome back moviegoers than with an amazing salty and sweet treat that combines America's favorite cookie and popcorn to create true movie theater magic. Want to taste a snack that's destined to be a hit for yourself? You can head over to oreopopcornsample.com for a complimentary sample of Oreo popcorn. Again, that's oreopopcornsample.com to get your complimentary Oreo popcorn sample today. And so now we've got a couple of big uh, box office subjects to discuss. One of them I'm so excited about because it's Dune opening overseas. But first, before we get to that, we're going to talk about Marvel's Shang-Chi, which leads the box office again for a third consecutive weekend. Uh, Daniel, numbers-wise, what are we talking about here? That's right, Ross. Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings from Disney scoring the third consecutive weekend here atop the box office in North America with $21.7 million from around 4,000 screens. Guys, that's a very good drop here in its third frame, only 37% from its first holdover. It is now the second highest grossing movie of the year domestically with $176.9 million. To give you guys some context, Black Widow was actually at $154.8 million at the same point in release after three weekends, Currently, that's the top pandemic title in the U.S. and Canada with a total of 183.8 million domestic. So we are looking at a situation that it's going to be very likely that Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings will become the top title at the domestic box office as early as this weekend. I think just looking at this IP, 
it's a little bit of an upset. I'm not sure what you guys think, but we really have to look at that theatrical exclusivity as a big reason why a title like this one ends up being on top at this point in the pandemic. I mean, I, I personally, I'm not that shocked or surprised. Russ, it's something that you've expressed on the podcast before that, um, you know, Black Widow, it kind of felt a little bit like its its time had, had come and gone. It didn't feel, for me personally, uh, so much like a, an essential, fresh part uh, of the MCU. And, you know, another factor to, to Shang-Chi performing so well, admittedly, it's a factor that applied to, uh, to Black Widow, too, is that it's really holding on to those PLF screens. And, of course, it has uh, theatrical exclusivity where Black Widow never did, even if you had to pay 30 bucks to see it at home on Disney+. Plus. I think those are all good points. There's another thing that I wonder about uh, and that is impossible for us to quantify, but I do want to bring it up. Obviously, over the past year, we've talked a lot about the push and pull between two dominant markets right now, between theatrical exhibition and between streaming at home, premium VOD or regular VOD. Shang-Chi, you know, I'm sometimes I say Shang-Chi, sometimes I say Shang-Chi. I've got to standardize this. We're not going to cut this. We're going to leave it in. But this time I'm going to say Shang-Chi just to mix it up. Uh, I wonder about the degree to which this title benefited from Marvel's very popular slate of streaming series on Disney+. Plus. So I'm talking about Loki, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, WandaVision. These are shows that have really captured uh, big chunks of the pop culture zeitgeist over the past six months and have kept the Marvel Cinematic Universe, even though it wasn't cinematic exactly, alive in the uh, minds of fans uh, when there was not a new movie to see. And so- Can, can I can I intro that? They kept the Marvel momentum going. So I'm going to coin the word Marvel-mentum right here before allowing you to- I, th- I think that Stan Lee has probably, at some, at some point, Stan Lee must have written that in a column in 1978 and then said Excelsior and used seven exclamation points. And we all thought, oh, my God, you're great at this. And we would have been right. He was great at it. Uh, but, yeah, the the the, Marv- the Marmentum, Marv- Marvelmentum, uh, we're going to have to workshop this. Anyway. I think that there is possibly an aspect of the popularity of the Marvel Disney Plus series that really helped this title out because maybe if you're part of that fan base, this seems like a natural continuation. Uh, and it's not maybe the the first big new chapter after a long drought where there wasn't any material going on. That story universe, that storyline overall has been alive for people in a big way over the past year. I was looking at the notes here. I was going to say we had two new limited releases in theaters this past weekend. Uh, in my head, I thought Cry Macho uh, was was a limited film. It's not. That the new release from Warner Brothers, uh, starring and directed by Clint Eastwood, um, did in fact open on just around four thousand screens, which it, it doesn't really seem like a four thousand screen film. Uh, whereas you have The Eyes of Tammy Faye, uh, which did open uh, limited on 450 screens. Daniel, can you catch us up on how those two films did in terms of box office performance? That's a good observation, Rebecca. And really, it's been an approach that Warner Brothers has taken with some Clint Eastwood movies in the past. I think most recently you had a movie like American Sniper 
that Warner Brothers opened a little bit deeper into award season. They opened it platform, then went limited, eventually went wide, and they had a huge hit in those winter months in the year that that was released. This is a very different type of Clint Eastwood movie uh, than An American Sniper or, say, maybe than like a Sully that also came out uh, not that long ago. This is more of an introspective title from uh, the auteur that is Clint Eastwood here working not only as director, but also as star and really looking at his own career, at his own legacy through this movie. It's a very interesting movie because of that. Uh, the title, as you mentioned, opening in almost 4,000 screens. It's a wide release despite this day and date availability on HBO Max opening in third place to 4.4 million. I know that's not a lot of money, but really this isn't that type of movie that had to reach a big wide audience. Uh, it's not really designed for that. As I mentioned, this is one of those quieter Clint Eastwood movies. He's actually gone in this direction in the past as a director. Some of his most interesting movies, in my opinion tend to be along this line. I think the high point was probably Unforgiven in 1992, but you've seen some of these themes also pop up in other types of movies that he's directed. I'm also thinking of titles like Million Dollar Baby or Gran Torino. Cry Macho, I think, works in tandem with a very recent Clint Eastwood movie, that is The Mule. Both Cry Macho and The Mule look at the relationship between the U.S. and Mexico through the border. So it's maybe not a great movie. Some of the performances I don't think work that well, but I definitely think it's a very interesting movie. Yeah, you know, I things being what they are right now, I watched the beginning of Cry Macho. I wasn't able to watch the entire movie because the really the, the weekend got a away from me. But um, I have been a Clint Eastwood fan all of my life. I come, you know, at times I'm more of a fan than others, uh, but I can never not watch one of his movies. And that includes, you know, Space Cowboys. And a lot of that is because my dad and I didn't necessarily connect over a lot of movies, but he was a big Clint Eastwood fan. I saw a lot of Clint Eastwood movies with him and with my parents. And it was it probably is part of the reason that I do what I do now because we talked about those movies a lot. And so I watched something like Cry Macho through the lens of, you know, wishing that I was able to watch it or at least talk about it with my dad. Um, and so it's kind of appropriate that it is a reflective, uh, meditative sort of movie that looks back at Eastwood's past and the roles that he's played and 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 also looks at the fact that maybe he as a as both an actor and and his characters as people bore more responsibility for their fates than they would like to admit. Um, there's a lot of heady stuff there. Again, I haven't seen the whole movie, but what I did see, I, I liked quite a bit. And uh, I feel like it's interesting. You know, Eastwood is at a time when Warner Brothers is kind of struggling to maintain their roster of top tier talent in the wake of the day and date decision uh, with HBO Max this year. They lost Nolan. Nolan's making his next movie with Universal. Uh, all accounts suggest that Denis Veneuve is not entirely thrilled with Warner Brothers right now. Uh, you know, but they've still got Eastwood and Eastwood is, you know, whatever anybody wants to say, Eastwood is marquee, major, master American filmmaker, big talent. Uh, and so it's interesting, yeah, that that a movie like Cry Macho would open on 4,000 screens because as you guys suggested, it's really not a 4,000 screen kind of movie. So uh, in that respect, I like seeing just that it happened. It's like it does kind of seem like an end of an era sort of scenario. 
All right, let's talk about Dune. So sadly, I mean, well, sadly for you, Russ, we are still uh, waiting uh, till October 22nd for that release stateside, but it did debut number one in several international markets over the weekend. Um, and it, it did particularly well, I, I read, on uh, on IMAX and premium large format screens, which uh, I think shows that people are making the right decision on how to see this very visually striking film. That's right, Rebecca. Dune opening in 24 overseas markets and making 37.9 million from nearly 8,200 screens in total, including several notable number one debuts. In Russia, it made 7.8 million. That's the biggest September opening weekend of all time and the biggest opening film uh, from the United States during the pandemic in that market. Moving down with top performers, you have markets like France, where it made 7.5 million. In Germany, it opened at 5.2 million. Italy at 2.5 million, and Spain opening to 2.4 million. In all four of those markets, France, Germany, Italy, and Spain, this is the second biggest opening weekend of 2021. So that's a great, great head start for this title in its early overseas debut. I think that's very positive traction as we get closer to the US release of Dune. Guys, there's a lot of expectation around this title, but let's face it, it's far from being a guarantee. Yes, it's a big sci-fi epic, but it's among big sci-fi epics it's a little bit niche and really not, let's say, as mainstream as one would think it would be. What are your impressions based out of this performance? Well, and it's one where, I and this is something that's been stated already, so it doesn't really constitute spoilers or anything like that, but it very much is one part of the story. I mean, there is going to be, or there has to be, in order to complete the adaptation of Frank Herbert's book, A Dune 2. And and more specifically, a lot of the big, like, puts butts in seats sort of stuff is in the back half of the book. Um and so I'm. I have not seen this first movie yet, um, but just knowing the material really well, I'm really curious to see how they've broken it down and and or what they've added to it or moved around uh, to put you know some big uh, attention getting sequences in this first movie. When really you know uh, if you look at David Lynch's original film or you look at the novel, a lot of the really big stuff, a lot of the action is in the back half. So uh, yeah, I. I mean, I've been concerned simply in the sense that I would like to see the full adaptation, which means I want the first movie to do well enough so that I might get to see the second movie. And yeah, I'm, I'm a little worried uh, from that respect. Um, but, you know, I've heard good things and everything that I've heard, even the, the complaints that people have aired to me sound like Dune. So I feel like I'm probably going to be happy. It's just a question of whether general audiences respond well enough to, to make that second movie, uh, you know, a foregone conclusion. It comes out on October 22nd. It's not going to have that weeks long kind of ownership, I guess you would say, of premium large format screens that Shang-Chi's having now, if only because Eternals comes out on November 5th. So obviously Eternals is going to kind of swoop in and get the PLF from Dune on that one. So um, 
uh, you know, I don't know. We'll have to see. And let's not forget about the elephant in the room when we talk about that opening weekend for Dune here in the United States when it does open across North America. Day and date. That's not something that this initial crop of overseas markets have had to contend against. They have a really, for the lack of a better way of saying it, a month-long head start of an exclusive run with Dune to theaters before a pristine digital copy is available on HBO Max when it opens in the United States. So important things to keep in mind as we look at these early overseas numbers, great overseas numbers for a title like Dune. Let's hope that we can carry some of that momentum here in North America in late October. And moving on guys to our feature segment, we've got another great interview as part of our partnership with Spotlight Cinema Networks with the Chief Operating Officer of Flix Brewhouse, I've been to one of their locations in Texas before. I think it's a great concept. Rebecca, can you tell me a little bit more about this uh, Flix Brewhouse concept before we get right into that interview? Absolutely. Uh, Flix Brewhouse, and today our feature interview is with Matthew, uh, their COO, combines three extremely good, extremely popular things, movies, food, and craft beer, which is actually uh, brewed on site. Um, Flix Brewhouse is actually celebrating its 10th anniversary this year, so happy birthday to that chain. It operates currently in seven states. Now, I'm sure it's no surprise to anyone listening to this podcast that that made things a little bit complicated uh, during 2020 and 2021 when different state and local regulations made closing and reopening various uh, Flix Brewhouse locations no easy feet. But we'll hear more about that from Matthew. Matthew, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And uh, happy to tell you kind of everything that's going on uh, in the uh, Flix uh, ecosystem. Could you start a bit by, you know, talking about what 2020 was like for Flix Brewhouse with the understanding that you're spread across, uh, I believe, four or five states. So obviously it's going to be different from location to location. It, it actually is uh, uh, 10 locations in seven states. When the pandemic hit, we had nine. We actually uh, had three that were uh, in various stages of development. And we went and actually opened one of those in the middle of the pandemic. So that's how we got to 10. Um, but it, it was quite a year, I have to tell you. So uh, having theaters that were nearly completed when this hit and having some that were in various stages of construction uh, and all the crews had to stop, um, th- that was just the beginning of the problem. The actual um, reduction of staff related to furloughs and closures uh, when this hit um, was just one of the most painful days of my life. And, and, and there I thought back in March that that pain was going to be short-lived. Oh, everyone was like, oh, we'll be back by June. Yeah, that, that goes to say um, the, the theme of this whole thing. Here we sit recording this in September of 2021, uh, 18 months after this whole thing started. 
And I, I got to tell you, we guessed various things along the way at various times, how long it would last, when a vaccine would be available, when money would arrive for shuttered venue operators. Um, what would the federal government do? How many stimulus plans would they pass? I got to tell you, I was wrong about everything. If somebody were to uh, create betting lines on COVID-19 and ask me to pick a side and if somebody did the opposite, they'd be a billionaire. It was just um, really, really tough. And, and, and one of the tough things is, is that Flix was built on this culture uh, around beer and movies and fun and all these things uh, related to happiness, right? And, and here we are in the middle of misery, having to take uh, 1,500, 1,250 rather, uh, team members and lay them off. And then we've got, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of guests in our loyalty database. And what do we say to them? And that was really the challenge, right? How do you communicate with the stakeholders of your company, whether it's your investors, whether it's your managers or team members or your customers? We don't have anything to say that's accurate. So we just stop talking. That's the reality of the situation. So the communication side from us, I would say, was rather poor. But the reason for, the, for it being poor is how many times can I be the boy who cried wolf and say the wrong thing? Well, we think we're going to open next month. Six months later, here we are. You said next month. And that's such a challenge. And in, in once you're allowed to reopen, it changes with every state, along with the different operating restrictions. Matthew, how did you go about that reopening? What was the timeline of getting Flix Brewhouse back online and communicating different things to different audiences? Yeah, so it, it, it was very different and, and, and different at different times too, right? So when we did our first attempt at a reboot was probably June, I believe, of 2020. Um, that was the first time when we could open the doors and we could at least get some people back to work and, you know, those kinds of things. And, you know, we had a, a huge core uh, group of team members returning to the business. Why? Because everybody was closed in, in March, right? Restaurants were closed. Everybody uh, that, that we're competing for in the same sector for the same team member was closed. So we returned a good core of people, but then we shut down. And then we waited until August and we did it again. And we still had a good core group of people because there were a lot of food and beverage operators uh, in addition to movie theaters that were still closed in various areas. Um, but the third time, that was ugly, right? Now you've got restaurants back open. You've got people that need jobs. You've got federal uh, stimulus and uh, supplements to unemployment ending and people need to go back to work, and we lost a tremendous amount of our, our core group. And then you've got, on top of that, to get back to your question, all of these different protocols that you need to deal with theater by theater, right? Some have uh, spacing requirements, some don't. Some allow you to make sure that you leave a row between people, some don't. Um, some require uh, masks all the time, some don't. Some even went so far as to say you can open for movies, but you can't open for food and beverage because then you would have to take your mask off inside the auditorium. Well, it's just untenable. We, we, we can't do that. Our, our core business is food and beverage. So how do we navigate it? Again, poorly, but 
to some extent, right? In other words, we just kind of threw in the towel and said, we've got to wait this out. It's just untenable to continue to do these things and try and manage all these different standards. And in addition to that, have to um, communicate this to people so that the, the people that are actually out in the field uh, or your customers for that matter know what they can and can't do. It's just all horribly confusing. Another aspect of that communication is not only what's going on in theater to theater, uh, what the what the rules are, what the regulations are, but which movies are coming out, how they're coming out, what can you see in theaters, what do you have to see in theaters, what's coming out day and date. Once you kind of get the theaters back up and running, I, I assume you're at a much better place in, with that now than you, you used to be. How do you communicate on that level with respect to the content? Yeah, so the, that was tricky too in the beginning. It's a lot simpler now because films don't seem to be moving and certainly things aren't going on sale that are moving. Back then we had films that actually went on sale. We sold tickets and then they moved the date. Right. So now we're in a position of you want to wait, do you want a refund? I mean, it's just a, a giant mess. We're not in a position now where we're dealing with that. And, and you can sense a bit of a comeback. Right. You can see uh, momentum at the box office. You can see a consistent film slate. Um, all of those things are good. We still have some uh, things we need to deal with, right? We've got variants out there. We've got mask wearing going on by all our team members. Um, we have to make decisions on mandatory vaccinations or not at some point, both for on the team member side and the guest side. Uh, we're not in a position to do that right now. Uh, way too early for us. But as you can see, New York is requiring it for their uh, employees as well as guests that come in to dine. Um, so there's, there's lots of things out there that are uh, still in flux that'll continue to uh, drive and change our business. One of the, let's say, overall uh, big picture parts of this narrative is that back when you guys opened in 2011, the dining space was, let's not call it uh, in its initial stages, but it definitely hadn't been as pervasive or it wasn't as, as much of a trend as it was right before the pandemic took off in 2020. So you had nine years basically where you saw Flix Brewhouse grow along with this dine-in concept. As you guys were expanding, what did COVID mean for Flix Brewhouse as a circuit in terms of those expansion plans? What do they look like now for the circuit? The dining business in 2011 is very different than it is now. Now, that's kind of an obvious statement um, because things always evolve over the course of 10 years. However, it was much more cutting edge. There were very few players that were in the dine-in space. Um, some people had tried them but hadn't really expanded. Um, now you've got uh, chains that are, have expanded nationally over the course of that 10 years in the dine-in space. It's become much more of a common way to go see a film, right? And, and I think dine-in ultimately will benefit for, from this pandemic. And why do I say that? Because there still will be, let's not fool ourselves, there's still going to be plenty of titles that will uh, be chosen to play day and date with theaters. And then what do you make a decision on as a consumer? The dine-in experience is more unique and we're providing something that is uh, much more difficult, not impossible, but much more difficult and time-consuming to replicate in home. 
So I believe that for special shows and shows that even will play day and date in home, you're going to see a, a greater uh, affinity by the consumer to go see it in theater versus in dine-in theater versus a more traditional theater where the, the home is probably competing more in alignment. So that's the first part of that. What is uh, different and what did we look like before and after, I believe, was the other part of the question. Well, we had grown um, to nine cinemas when COVID hit. We opened number 10. We uh, had three in the pipeline. We lost one because we had an impatient landlord. Don't blame the landlord, right? We kept telling him, money's coming. We're going to get this done. Uh, we're going to be able to get a settlement and get this open. And he simply ran out of patience. And he also stopped believing in the the, the, the cinema experience was going to be uh, able to be viable long term, right? So we lost one in the process. So we are now back at the same nine not necessarily the same locations, but the same number of nine we had when we uh, when the pandemic hit. Of those uh, nine, uh, five or six, six I think we just opened or just about to open number six uh, has been reopened. So that leaves three left that are not yet reopened. We've announced an, a reopening date for our Albuquerque location, which was one of our most successful uh, locations. And uh, the public, I have never seen a welcome back uh, like we're seeing from them. So much excitement in that community, which is terrific. Um, it's also uh, the only dine-in cinema uh, with service at your seats in the entire state of New Mexico. So it has a great following. Uh, then we have uh, two more that have uh, yet to, to open and they're in various stages of the with the landlords, but I expect them both to be resolved. So by the time the uh, middle of November hits, we should be back to a nine unit company. And then we will start looking at a pipeline again, I imagine eventually uh, once we get some stability, uh, not only around movie schedules and uh, what kind of content that we're going to get uh, from distributors, but also uh, deal with some of the short staffing uh, issues that we're dealing with and get closer to fully staffed on the team member side of the business. So Matthew, as we know, Dynan has grown considerably over these last 10 years. It's now a very competitive atmosphere for any circuit. It's You can't just distinguish yourself, differentiate yourself by saying, I'm a dine-in cinema. How does Flix approach this challenge in having its own identity in a very, very competitive niche in exhibition? So that's kind of a softball for a guy like me, because <laughs> what is the name of the concept? Flix <laughs> Brew House. So let's first talk beer, right? Because everybody likes talking beer. Um, and, and Flick started brewing beer in 2011. And craft beer was just uh, getting its sea legs in, in 2011, right? It's much, much more uh, greater market penetration, uh, both in micro uh, breweries as well as just uh, general craft side uh, throughout the country now. But Flix has been doing this for, for 10 years. And there are people that, are, that come to Flix just for the beer. And, and, and let me tell you one other thing, a li little side story here. When I got to Flix, um, I didn't know uh, much about it, right? It was um, uh, it was an interview I was going on with our CEO, and um, I was coming here, and I saw the name. I didn't do a lot of research in advance, uh, and whatever, all, all that aside, I walk in, I see what it is, and what do I do? Because I had a night free before my, my interview. What do I do? I get on the phone, and I call my wife, and I say to her, 
you're not going to believe this. She says, what's that? I said, this place. You know how on our rare times when we're able to go to a movie, you know, once a month, date night, blah, blah, blah. There, there's two very, very compelling things here. And she says, she asked what they were. And I said, number one, we get to eat while we're in the movie. Because you know how many times we're both working and we go out and we go to dinner and a movie. And I will tell you 20% of the time it's either dinner or a movie because we never made both because we were all like, it's too late. We're too tired. We've got to pay the babysitter, all those kind of things. So that leads, though, to number two, which is the more compelling one, right? Because it's the point of differentiation that I was just talking about. So I said to her, you know, we, we trade picks back and forth, back and forth. And I would say, I want to go see Rambo and I would get a big uh, uh, eye roll and, and go, it's your pick. And then she'd get, she'd go do her thing. And it would be like something that is, uh, well, back then it wasn't around, but something like Downton Abbey or, you know, something that is a, a little more uh, female oriented, shall we say. So I, so I call her on this call from Flix and I said, guess what? You could pick every movie from now on. And she says, why? And I said, because I can sit there and drink beer. I don't care what's on the screen anymore. <laughs> and that made a huge difference. And that is, I believe, a differentiator for flicks. We end up having uh, the female making the buying decision. Uh, we know this uh, many, many, a, a large majority of the time, right? They're the plans makers. Uh, we have any female-oriented content. It goes completely crazy. So um, that, that beer hook, in order to be able to get people uh, really kind of interested in what's going on at Flix, is very effective. We focus a lot on alternative events and not just traditional first-run content that we promote. And uh, that's not necessarily something that you can get in your home, right? And we almost always, when we do those, uh, what we call Flix Picks, uh, we give you something to bring to your home. So we do a custom glass or something like that, that you'll get to bring home uh, from the movie. And we get people that are that are literally collecting them for every single movie that we do that's alternative. Um, and then last, we do, uh, we, we don't make it too fancy. And what, what do we, this is, here's what I mean by that. We have modern brew house interiors, which I think are relatable to people. Um, accessible food, so there's nothing really crazy on the menu. And then pricing that is competitive on the ticket side with the large chains, right? So our box office pricing is similar to what you would see in any of the, the larger chains out there. We're not uh, going any higher than they are. And then lastly, casual dining uh, prices on the food and beverage side. So your typical large uh, bar and grill or polished casual dining chain, we're going to mirror their pricing. So that makes us really accessible to a lot of people, all of those things combined. And I'm really happy and proud of the brand we've built in order to be able to, to make it a choice for uh, those cities that we serve. I've been to uh, the Flix Brewhouse location in Round Rock in Texas. And one of my favorite experiences that I had there was ordering the flight of beers and having a little bit of a tasting experience of different locally brewed beers as I'm watching a movie. Those are those little details that turn a regular Wednesday, Friday, Sunday at the movies into an experience and offers that, I think, competitive advantage that we're talking about. Distinguishing yourself from the competition and making it an appeal to get out of your home and not just, quote unquote, watch a movie. Obviously, for, for dine-ins, for cinemas as a whole, we've seen a lot of 
operational changes over the last 18 months. Things like move towards uh, more contactless ordering, mobile ordering, digital ordering. Sometimes, you know, you have a a switch up in the menu. From a dine-in perspective and from particularly Flick's Brewhouse's unique dine-in perspective and how you design your theaters, what changes have you had to make uh, from that operational perspective? And which of those do you think have viability maybe as something permanent for you? Well, first there's the obvious, but then I'll take it a different direction. Uh, the obvious would be um, a focus on mass, focus on mobile, focus on contactless. Um, so, you know, things that I think would be, you know, let's say ex- expected and standard in society with our type of business as it sits right now, right? They're just necessary to deal with and to add in uh, due to the pandemic. But what I think we need to talk about is changes that are needed in this model with or without COVID. And there are a lot of them. And so our innovation is focused on what would happen without COVID and why was it necessary? So um, this boils down to, well, two really two things. Labor, right? Because dine-in cinemas are very, very labor intensive. Um, And secondarily, it boils down to guest choice and convenience. Okay. I'll tell you a quick story. I went uh, to see a movie at Flix Brewhouse uh, not too long ago. What was the movie? It was Respect. I went and saw Respect there. And there was a gentleman sitting next to me that uh, about two seats down. And uh, as I usually do, I'm doing my best to observe how people use Flix. And I saw him come in. Um, he didn't even look at the menu. He wrote down everything that he wanted on a notepad. He had it all organized and ready for the server. Then the server came over, saw that anyway, and then proceeded to go through, have you been to Flixbury before? Let me explain to you how this works. Clearly the man knows the menu. Clearly going, I want you to get away from me. Uh, here's everything I need. I love this place. Just give me, give it to me how I want, right? And so I, I think that's a, kind of, that's a pretty compelling story and kind of what we need to respond to as an organization with the consumer. Um, so where I'm headed with this is uh, we need to figure out a way for people to pre-order, people figuring out how to add on order, um, being able to control their own experience how they want it. So they could go, I don't want to do any of that. I want a server to come up to me and explain it to me and all those kind of things. Or they could say, I've got everything done and I don't need this service and we can focus specifically on delivery and running. So that's kind of where we're headed as an organization to figure out how to reduce some of the labor to right size it in order to be able to meet the expectations of the guests. Now, I have a whole nother flicks of the future vision that uh, I have been working on right when the pandemic hit. Uh, that had uh, to do with uh, robots and carrying uh, trays to theaters and having only one person in there delivering the, that that uh, that tray to the guest because you got to move it from uh, where the landing spot is in the theater to the actual guest. Um, having eliminated the box office and moved to kiosk-only transactions on tickets, um, there's all sorts of movements out there related to uh, self-service alcohol these days, right? With self-service beer, with cards 
uh, NFC or RFID uh, kind of permissions for you to be able to pour from the tap. And you can do it with alcohol. You can do it with wine. You can do it with beer. Those places are really neat. I've never seen a theater have that. Yeah, exactly. So, So I think the model of the future looks exactly like that, where you have a lobby, where you have all sorts of beverage choices. They can be self-service because we have the technology to do it. Um, We can cut down on order takers because we have uh, the technology on the mobile app uh, for mobile ordering, both in and outside of the theater. And and then the inside the theater piece is the tricky piece, right? Because what you don't want is somebody turning on their flashlight and shooting a QR code in the middle of a movie. So we have to get that technology to be RFID technology, right? Where the background of a phone is automatically, if you're going to do this, uh, dimmed down to the lowest possible uh, black only screen so that the light doesn't interfere with your neighbor. And it uh, allows you to get that uh, menu pulled up, not by shooting a picture, but by RFID. And you can, it's already storing your payment method. You can add on anything you want during a show and it will show up in complete automated fashion with the exception of a person delivering it from its landing spot in the theater to you at your seat. As long as there's some side of kind of uh, advanced payment situation, you don't have to go through and deliver the checks and come back and do that. That would be my vote. That's that, my that, priority. That's <laughs> as, right. a, as a customer. Yeah, that's right. And one of the things, you know, we, we didn't talk about this yet, but I have a note about it. One of the things we've done to uh, make it more convenient, right, to deal with that on the customer end, but then also attract a whole additional set of uh, future team members is we, as we've reopened each flicks, we've added on a suggested 18% gratuity to every single check. So that check comes preloaded with that gratuity, not one of those things that says, this is the table down at the bottom. If you want to give 15, 18, 20, we all see that on checks in restaurants. This is automatically on there and you have, it has to go the other way. You have to call a manager and ask it to be removed. It's like, this, this, is, this is the climax of the movie happening. Don't ask me to do math. Absolutely. So this has made it more convenient for the guest. It is, and it's also, there's a lot of people out there that, that, you know, they're blown away by the movie. They forget to sign their check. They don't tip. There's all sorts of things. This eliminates that and gets our servers a guaranteed income. And it's been phenomenal. I, I kid you not, we've done this in five open locations right now. And number six already had this. They were our test locations. So they'll just back open back up with it. And I, I think I've gotten a total of three complaints, right? Wow, I'll, nice. ta- I'll take three complaints out yeah. of uh, the number That's of guests. Bad. Something that helps your staff, something that helps your staff retention as a manager, and something that helps the moviegoer enjoy the film uh, more intently. I think it's a, it's a great initiative. 100%. And that will wrap up this episode of the Box Office Podcast. Uh, thanks again to Matthew Bazer, the COO of Flix Brewhouse, for joining us. The Box Office Podcast is produced by recordeditpodcast.com and The Box Office Company. And thank you all for listening. Please join us again next week. Mm-hmm.